0: Have you ever picked up a plant at the grocery store and wondered to yourself, "Mm, can I really keep this alive? Or maybe you've planted seeds in the ground only to see them never sprout. Don't worry, if you've struggled to find any success, you're not alone. But imagine the pressure when the food industry supply chain is relying on your green thumb. So you have to find a way to plant trillions of seeds that yield crops covering millions of square miles to feed the world. It's no longer about having a green thumb. It's full on science and technology based operation, and it can't fail. That's where Bayer Crop Science and Alicia Herman step in to bring that supply chain to life.
1: We produce not only the seeds that the farmers plant, but we have to produce the fruits and the vegetables that produce the seeds that the farmers then plant.
0: Alicia is a global supply chain strategy and innovation partner at Bayer Crop Science. A company that is currently utilizing all forms of science and technology, including drones, machine learning, artificial intelligence, and robotics, to deliver the best produce from the moment seeds hit the dirt to the second you remove them from the shelves. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Alicia describes the unique ways Bear Crop Science is utilizing technology to ensure quality from both ends of the supply chain, why blockchain is now an integral tool for the food industry when it comes to tracking and tracing products, and much more.
1: IT Visionaries is created by the team at Mission.org and brought to you by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Innovate fast, empower every employee, and scale with confidence from anywhere, with a customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com platform.
0: Welcome, everyone, to another episode of IT Visionaries. And today we have Alicia Herman. She is a global supply chain strategy and innovation partner at Bayer Crop Science. Alicia, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: All right. Your title is a bit of a tongue twister. Tell me exactly what it is that you do at Bayer.
1: Yes, it is. So essentially, I'm more of an internal consultant and I help the teams and product supply from an IT, from a digital strategy, from a product supply core business team, accelerate innovation. So I do that through collaboration, uh, through innovation methodologies and through bringing in external partnerships to get to minimum viable products. So I sit along with the product supply IT leadership team and help bring technology to light within the strategy of the crop science business unit.
0: Yeah. So this is a fascinating domain. I've read a lot of information about this, but I don't know if our audience knows just how much technology is currently involved in bringing in the agriculture industry. Um, you know, I've, I've heard about technology in regards to the manufacturing, the movement of it. Uh, you yourself is listed intricacies and complex regulations for international trade, things you have to solve there. You worked on blockchain logistics. You've worked on inward processing standards, regulatory workflow in different countries. So this is a massive technology undertaking i was hoping you could share a little bit about and explain how why is technology so involved in the supply chain for crop science agriculture science how it basically unfolds how do we get how did we get to this place where technology is so involved
1: oh you know it's amazing one of the reasons that i was intrigued by this role at Bayer is because agriculture is one of the industries that i haven't worked extensively in but i also knew that there were such advances, you know, leaps and bounds and advances in technology. And uh, to be able to be part of that was just really exciting. If you think about um, AR, VR, robotics, drones, satellite, machine learning, all of that technology is being utilized from an agricultural science standpoint, either in, you know, the crop protection or in, you know, vegetable and seeds. So we're able to utilize technology from, you know, process engineering all the way up to you know cognitive supply chain decision-making plans. So it is woven throughout the entire supply chain. And I, I think not just agriculture, we see it in the farmer and the consumer health within Bayer, but across all industries, the focus is really on innovation acceleration, but specifically in supply chain between the 301 tariffs and 232 tariffs, and then also the pandemic. Everybody's seeing to light, you know, the gaps that they've had in this quote-unquote supply chain. And and really um, now, you know, the name itself, supply chain, you know, you get a vis- visualization of individual links, which I think is how everyone has operated before, you know, production, planning, demand, logistics. But now we're seeing that all of these have to kind of work together in, in an ecosystem and not just be a chain link anymore. So, I mean it's it's all over it's fascinating
0: yeah maybe we can walk our audience through how it used to be and what it is today because if we like break it down if i was a kid again i would assume that a farmer grows a crop a machine comes and picks it up it goes to a distribution center it comes to my grocery store i have food to eat i mean like seem it feels like it should be that simple right but it's not yeah (laughs) and i saw a talk i saw a fascinating talk by someone in um in crop sciences Talk about how today there's more food extracted from the earth than like it's ever been extracted before, which makes total sense because of the, how big the population has gotten, right? The population of earth today is the biggest it's ever been in the history of earth. But we know that f- fertile land hasn't increased in any way. So that means that more yields have to be created all the time to just to feed the population. And so there's obviously science into going there to make the seeds in the dirt yield more. But then as you talked about getting it from A to B, so I was hoping you could share both domains, right? Like what, are, what is happening to get more yields out of the earth? And also what is happening to get that seed from that seed to that plant to us? Uh, what's that look like today? Because it's not, it's not just a farmer hiring someone to harvest their, <laughs> harvest their field, take it to a distribution center and to the grocery store, you're good to go.
1: It's a lot more complicated to that. So if I think really from the demand side, we can start there. So from a demand side, you think it's a commodity, corn, soybeans, those types of things. And really the government has kind of an index for what they think you should be growing. But again, that's not accurate at all, right? So we have those things like natural disasters. We have bug infestations. There's all kinds of outside and external factors that come to play with the demand side and we have a technology that helps there to predict planting intentions from you know this harvesting season to next 5 years to really what is the population going to be wanting to eat in you know the next 10 years and in what you know you look at the organic trends or the vegan trends or really all of those different food preferences that that come into play there And then we have production. So that is, I think most people in supply chain have very similar, very similar challenges when it comes into actual production of goods. So what does Bayer produce though? We produce not only the seeds that the farmers plant, but we have to produce the fruits and the vegetables that produce the seeds that the farmers then plant. So there's two different sides to that. And then there's also the crop protection, which is ensuring that what you are planting will get that higher yield. So when it comes to those things, there's everything from sensors in the ground, so you can watch a seed grow, to R&D developments in different traits of seeds, so they are harvest. You know, they harvest a little bit differently to make the, I would, the harvesting actually easier. So it grows to make harvesting easier. And then we also have you know predictive analytics for the machines. We have AR, VR for you know training of how to use. A forklift. You know, there are all kinds of different things that happen within production that are are innovative in a sense. And that's, you know, the farmer then would get the seed, plant the seed. Uh, but there's data and analytics that happen. How much water does it need? How much sun has it gotten? What are the external factors that are happening in the weather? Are we growing this crop outside? Or are we growing it indoors? Because now we can grow crops indoors that are, have much more predictable weather, for example. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a lot different. Uh, but when it goes to harvest, we know that there is one, a labor shortage. And two, it's awfully intense you know, to harvest corn and soybeans and all of the other fruits and vegetables that we grow. So we're looking at different robotics. Different ways for the actual vegetable to grow so we can harvest it in a different manner than has been done in the last hundred years. And we can track a lot of that with uh, smart labels. Uh, Bear just has a partnership with a, a few other people where we can actually print 3D print labels on packages that are track and trace through RFID. So you can carry it printed all the way through getting it to the farmer. So there's a lot of Technology that's going into spot and, and local treatment of these productions to get those higher yields
0: I mean I think I think what you just highlighted is just absolutely amazing because when you know when I drive by let's say a farm with my kids they look over there and they think oh okay well you know the farmer he looks at his crop he looks at his crops and he says hmm I think they need water I think he, they think it's a judgment call but you're saying there's sensors in the ground as well as sensors in the air that kind of detect And can somehow optimize based on its current weather pattern, current soil composition, based on current rainfall, does it need water or does it not need water?
1: That's absolutely correct. Also, satellite and drone images can look at the crop and see how it's growing to see if there are, you know, any insects on there that have to be removed or anything that looks off about the crop itself. So all of that comes together and you know like machine learning AI technology to Make these predictions of what should happen to the crop to know what should happen to it next so it gets the most yield out of that acre.
0: I read another thing about some of the innovations that's happening inside of our food supply chain that's, I was curious if, you know, I'm going to share and hopefully if it's not familiar with you, we can cut this part out. But they were studying how technology is now in this, is so accurate in the sorting of food that they now can, you know, one by one, almost individually identify basically funguses, disease, well, funguses and diseases and different things that could potentially be in a food. So like imagine like peanut sorting, like one peanut could be identified as having aflatoxins and it could be like kicked out of the supply chain basically and considered waste. And then they can identify where did those peanuts come from. And if they identify where those peanuts come from, they can help that farmer or that, that grower identify that this is, this is a problem and they need potential fungicide or something like that to prevent that from happening. I was hearing stories of that and I didn't know, like, are you part of that as well as identifying as Bear part of that, like identifying potential harmful elements inside of the supply chain from ever reaching the customer?
1: Yes, absolutely. So part of, um, you know, I think part of any company is not to have any bad press, but when it comes to food, it's especially dangerous. So you don't want to ship out a product that isn't of the highest quality and, you know, can be, you know potentially detrimental. So if you ship something with a fungicide that goes to somewhere that's never had this before, they don't have the means to treat it. So you could really do some damage to uh, the individual crop acreage that the farmer plants that in. So take great pride in identifying things from pathogens to bug infestations on all of the crops. And there's even a blockchain solution that just came out with there this year, um, well, at the end of last year, or track and trace of seed to your plate, really, so we can understand exactly where that seed has been through its entire um, journey to get to that crop. So I, I think it's a, track and trace is especially important in all food product.
0: You know, I think I feel like I understand, but why was that not possible prior? Uh, you know, you, you're using new technologies to enable track and trace, but why was that not possible? prior to these new technologies emerging, what made it so difficult to know that, hey, this product came from this farm and this is the source of the the problem?
1: Well, so, I mean, I think it's almost all, you know, we have a country of origin stamped on everything, right? You have a country of origin of where your bananas come from or where your cup comes from. And a lot of people take that at face value, which it really isn't, right? You're relying on the information that you get from your suppliers to be accurate. And you may not know the, the whole journey before. So prior to the technology to enable this sort of track and trace, it's a very manual effort to ensure that all of that information is accurate and then to rely on it and follow it from say the supplier to this distributor or the wholesaler to the individual farmer that bought it. And then to the distributor that they sold the product to, and then maybe to your grocery store. So all of that information was probably housed somewhere but it wasn't shared between companies and i think that's where technologies like blockchain come in because you're able to share a certain information but also to hide certain information so you don't want to share your pricing your recipe that sort of thing to your competition so now that you know technologies like blockchain are there you can share the information of where it's come from and its origin but not necessarily give anything else away and um You know, blockchain was meant for people to do deals that they didn't illegal activity. They didn't want (laughs) others to know. So you're, you're really able to control how that data is disseminated. So I think it's that it's the labels technology is much cheaper now than it used to be. So when this technology was first coming out, you know, I think a label, a smart label would be like $8. Nobody can spend $8 labeling a piece of fruit that isn't going to sell for that much. So it's really understanding the, you know, the cost per material. Too and to make it possible.
0: Now, your career has been mostly outside of crop science or (laughs) outside of agriculture, right? It looks like you've been, you know, at multiple different companies, including roles at director at KPMG. Talk to me a little bit about how you ended up at Bayer. Like, what was it that was fascinating for you to say, hey, I want to take this on?
1: Yeah. So, my role at KPMG, the past you know a year at least i focused on innovative technology and how i could use that in a, a global trade sense so machine learning for product classification uh, blockchain prototypes for logistics companies that sort of thing but i really couldn't focus on that you know in in a big four you kind of own your your own little hierarchy and your clients and you're really kind of working on innovative tech but it, it might be specific to what they're working on right and in this role uh, i thought for for two reasons it allowed me to look at a wider array of technology and more focus on the challenge and how technology could help than to solve for a specific problem already, and really to help open up the the minds and help with the culture of innovation at Bayer. But also, Bayer's mission itself is um, food for all, hunger for none, or health for all, hunger for none. So I, I just really enjoyed the mission statement and see how it could fit within my lifestyle. So, there's a big draw there. And I haven't done a lot of agriculture. I've been in auto, I've been in pharma, life sciences, um, manufacturing, retail, wholesale, but never agriculture. So, it was new and fascinating.
0: So, how does your role work? Because the domain of agriculture is huge, right? You said like engineering the seed all the way to the yields to the supply chain. Where do you focus? Because. Uh, <laughs> You know, it's, it's like, it's a, it's such a vast field. I'm a, you know, I don't want to, you know, I'm assuming you have domain experience in all domains, but I would, I don't know. Do you, are you, would you consider yourself an expert in all domains? Like how does your, how does the role unfold? Like, do you, are you given projects or are you overseeing all projects?
1: Yeah. So that's a great question. I think uh, our role as a team is, is, you know, constantly changing, but really, Our goal is to help with digital transformation, but not in the sense of getting data and process aligned. It's really to help the business utilize the data that we have uncovered so they can make better decisions and, you know, stay more competitive. So my team helps out, you know, with mainly with collaboration, priority setting, and then bringing in the new tech and uh, ways and applications to use it, but helping with, you know, business case RLI design thinking, um, methodologies in general, setting up what we call like catalyst. Um, It's really open innovation challenges within Bayer that everyone can participate in. We're going through one now and uh, we've had 74 submissions globally. So when it comes to where to focus, it's constantly changing, quite honestly. (laughs) I think it depends. One, we focus on what is the current portfolio and what is the strategy within crop science and IT, but also with the business itself. And once we kind of have an understanding of that, we I meet with each of the individual teams. It can be execution and manufacturing. It could be R&D. It could be you know supply chain in, in the warehouse. And just really understand what burning priorities that they have. And then try to marry that up with the strategy. And then understand how I can help in those individual areas and who to bring in to help the most. And part of that that's really fun is really I get to learn every day and talk to external companies, understanding how they're using technology. I'm fascinated by things in the news. Like last month, Boeing, you know, used alternative fuel for a flight. And now um, there's a new engine that's come out that's like a, a hydro turbine. So just understanding how different uses could different technology comes out and how it could apply to there. So is there a new turbine engine that could go in a farm machine, you know, farm machinery that can reduce energy spend? Another cool thing, I don't know, we use drones within the agriculture space, but a company wing in Australia just has, you know, grown like 500% in the last month or something like that of drone deliver individual drone deliveries. And, <laughs> and they stated that it takes less energy for them to deliver a box of pasta than it does for you to cook the pasta on the stove.
0: It doesn't seem possible. I mean I <laughs> you know, know. hearing that it just doesn't seem possible. <laughs>
1: so so if you think about all the different ways that you can use tech, either for sustainability or for efficiency, it you know, you, you really have to keep your eyes and ears open and then bring that in to see how it might work, or maybe it doesn't work, but at least you fail fast.
0: <laughs> so you know, in hearing in hearing you explain that, it sounds like you know, a lot of people bring challenges to your team. And they say, hey, this is a problem, or this is something we'd like to have solved. And you're sitting there listening to these challenges and coming up and applying solutions. But a lot of the, a lot of, I would say, the departments, I'm assuming they have quite a few dependencies. Uh, you need someone on the other end that also agrees that this is the solution that they want to implement, right? Because if you're moving product between, uh, let's say, point A to point B, point A might have the delivery technology, but point B needs the receiving technology. They can't, you can't just bring to something that can't receive it. I'm curious, How does because this is something that a lot of our listeners that hold leadership positions are part of, which is they might have a good solution, but you kind of have to have alignment between two parties to say like, this is worth implementing. How do you guys go about implementing the solution? Because it's one thing to say, okay, this is a viable solution, but both parties have to agree in order for an implementation to even begin.
1: I would agree. I think there are a lot of times in companies that one area or one group might have this great, fantastic idea and they go through a proof of concept and now they want to scale. And they're like, here, IT, now you should do this. And they're <laughs> like, wait a second, we're doing these 45 other projects. That's nowhere on our radar. We don't have the resources for that. So I think what's fortunate um, about the culture and you know, about the excitement within innovation is everyone in the company is thinking about it. And there are specific strategic meetings and alignments to discuss all of these projects Prior to the proof of concept, way back at the minimum viable product. and um, there are outlets for funding for design thinking coaches, or really that change management, you know, change management process and operation prior to getting to that, I would say, conflict or maybe not an agreement on what should happen in which area. So we do have these strategic milestones and steps all the way along the way to ensure that all parties that could be affected are involved. I talked a little bit about like our open innovation challenges, but those come with teams and they have to be diverse teams so that all parties that should be affected are included in those teams. So there's we should have some some idea of where a challenge might lie before it actually occurs.
0: So give me an idea, because you you know one of the things that based on your history at KPMG and also working at different, um, you know, consultancies, is you've seen a lot of companies implement technology. And also, you've probably seen a lot of companies fail to implement things. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yes. (laughs) Right?
0: So give me an idea. How fast does your current group, how fast do you guys currently move? If if there's alignment and the project is greenlit and says, hey, we should do this, how fast is something implemented nowadays?
1: I wouldn't say implemented. So there, we have steps to kind of do the uh, fail fast concept. So resources aren't invested Mm -hmm. so heavily at the beginning. So I think the old kind of methodology with ERPs and all of that is you, you come up with this, you know, you're going to S4. So you come with this huge project roadmap. You're looking you know, years (laughs) on end. But when we come, (laughs) when we we come to these sort of more um, localized solutions, I'll call them, we work with vendors. Sometimes we'll have what we call a hackathon to see what they can do to how they would solve our solution within uh, you know two days that sort of thing and we try to come up with a minimum viable product within I don't know six weeks and if that looks good, then we might add more data or or whatever it is to come up with a proof of concept. so we're not reinventing the wheel we're just taking smaller, more agile steps to look at will this be successful or not without investing a whole lot
0: That's very much like a Startup software company mentality, yeah. right? Make well, use the limited resources, make something as fast as possible. See if it works. If it works, invest a little bit more. Now I know, like you said, companies haven't always been this way. They always want a huge, big rollouts, big rollouts. They're fully in pot committed. You know that's a huge departure, I think, from just let's say ten years ago. How many experiments do you think are happening like that at any given time? Like even in your department, how many experiments are you overseeing like this um, at any given time?
1: Oh. I personally know of probably 20 at if any given time, but that probably means there's 200 or more. Right. Um, <laughs> and I, and one, one of my you know, responsibilities in the role is really to communicate and collaborate and to really shine light on all of these different experiments that are going on within the company and all these different challenges. So we have a platform where now we can put in all the experiments that are going on. So we can try to make sure that we can you know, utilize software already that we're already using within another part of the company that we didn't know was happening, which I know is very common with most larger companies. And really just to, to collaborate in that manner, because they're happening all over. And really, if you have funding, I think, why not? Yeah. <laughs> why not see if this is a, something that can solve our problem?
0: So how much time... Currently, would you say you spend doing research because part of the role you've described is because you have to be at the front line or potentially close to the front line of every new emerging technology. I'm assuming your job is research heavy, but I don't know how much of your time is just spent learning about new things?
1: I would say it depends on the day or you know what project, if, if I have had a lot of information on it or not, but I would say for any project, you know, four hours a day, just researching different companies, learning about the technology, reaching out to universities, venture capitalists, startups, um, research firms to understand what's going on in the industry, which companies they would rate high versus low, what they would invest in, what they wouldn't invest in, and really just understand the overall growth of the market over the next five years and that sort of thing. It's it's pretty research intensive, but it's also a lot of collaboration, so it's a good balance.
0: So that's one of the things I wanted to get at is because, you know, one of the big challenges I feel like all IT tech leaders have is every vendor is going to tell you that this thing is the next best, greatest thing. We also know that of like, let's say the next, let's say of the technologies that emerge over the next 12 months, maybe 90% will fail. You know, Yeah. the success rate is. Relatively low for new technology. Although new technology that's worth investing in will get better, no different from how many like we talk about these crop yields, right? It starts low, but you keep getting better and better and better, and like soon enough, each acre yields more, yields more because you keep getting better with the experiments and science. So, how do you know, or how do you make a bet? How does Bear make a bet and say this is worth trying? Because you you know that certain things have a probability of failure.
1: Uh, absolutely, I think. This is where I would say common sense comes in. <laughs> uh, it, this, if you just look at you know low cost of investment, high cost of investment and low return versus high return, if you look at those in quadrants, you obviously want the low, low investment, high return, right? So if we just kind of outlaid all of the programs and projects that were there, we can understand pretty quickly what's going to give us low investment, high return versus high investment, low return. And kind of look at it from a practical perspective. However, I will say the deviation is if you know that something, a technology is not readily adapted right now, but could be, and then put you up and set you up for success in the future, that would be more heavily scrutinized. So I wouldn't say there's a magical formula to do that. It's really just understanding hey, where are we now? What's an incremental incremental step that we can take to get where we're doing. And then also keeping an eye on what the future holds.
0: I think we were always digging for that magical methodology, but it's just there, you know, it's just good hearing different people how they different approach it. When you guys think about these returns, how do you think of it? Is it like a 2x cost, 3x cost? Is that considered a high X return, 4X cost? I wanted, I didn't know if you had like a number you could share that people say, oh, okay, that's what she means by high return.
1: Ah, no. So there are a couple of different metrics that are used. Obviously um, you have to look from a technology perspective, first and foremost, is it replacing something? Is it adding something, right? What is the purpose of the technology? What is it helping, right? Is there a reduction in cost? Is there a reduction in working capital? What is the actual return? Is it a new business model? So now we have new revenue. So I wouldn't say there's always that magic number of, hey, it's two times the return because they could be serving very different functions. Mm-hmm. Like a new, I would say a new business model that now opens your door to 20% more customers and increases your revenue or a new product that uh, can take down your expenses. So now your margins 2% more. I would say those are both very good projects. If you said, well, we think it might work and we might break even, probably not something to invest in unless the user experience is much better. So there are, I think there are lots of different lenses to look at. Should we do this?
0: Yeah. There is no magic formula, right? Like everyone always wants to look for it, but we always like asking different leaders, like, how do you personally go about evaluating these things? Um, it's always good to hear and refreshing to hear, uh, you know, any, any different nuggets of wisdom that can bring people closer to that decision. When you think about what's happening in your field, right? What are some of the technologies that you've researched that give you like some excitement? Like, wow, this is going to be making for a better future.
1: So, yeah, I don't know about completely, you know, future applications, how wonderful it'll make the world, you know, how, how much it'll change it. But I think AR VR is becoming increasingly popular where I didn't really, I thought it was, Oh, just gamers before, you know, like,
0: that's what I thought. (laughs) That's what I still think. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's fair <laughs> but i think it's really becoming a lot um has a lot more applications you think about social distancing you can have arvr to do virtual plant tours or virtual field trips you can now for certain e-commerce stores you can use the glasses to see how a piece of furniture will fit into your home uh you can go and look at some of the basketball games, you know, and, you know, see 3D models and and having them play in different, you know, visualizations. So I think that technology is going to get a lot more popular and it has practical applications, training. If you think about a surgeon and and all of these different things, what could happen, or even just training a forklift, um, that sort of thing. Edge computing. I think people don't talk about that one as much, but really that. Edge computing is what drives the data to get from the sensor to where you want to make a decision, right? So when you need to make it on the fly, I mean, it's just, it's not like a sexy technology like edge computing, it's, <laughs> but it's really necessary to make all of the other things happen. And really, I think robotics would be the next one for labor. I mean, in, in Asia, I went to Seoul. When did I go to Seoul? At least two years ago, right? Because we were <laughs> traveling last year. And it was the first time I saw a robot in the airport that could guide you to where you needed to be and ask all different, you know, you, it could answer different questions for you if you were lost, needed food, take you actually to your to your gate, that sort of thing. And I know they're very popular in Asian countries and hospitals, et cetera, to, to perform simple solutions like that. So aside from labor, they also have some practical applications, maybe a lobby waiting room instead of a, a person there to greet you, you have this replacement.
0: Yeah, let's let's use two of those technologies to talk about some of the things that are in your domain. Um we'd talk about the like the remote nature of what where crops are grown. Yeah because a lot of crops are grown, not you know, obviously very far from the city. Do you do you envision that continuing or is vertical farming gonna replace crop uh like field crop growing?
1: So I, I don't know I don't know that it will replace, but I certainly think it will um, share, right? Mm-hmm. If you think about, I mean, if I just put into perspective, all of the things that have happened from a, a human standpoint, right? Everybody was home. You see different trends like beekeepers, beekeepers, that's trending. There are a lot of people that have, you know, combs, honeycombs in their backyard because they're beekeepers now because they have the time, they're not going to work and they're not traveling in their home. Same thing is happening with gardening. So a lot of people now say New York City, Chicago have these different patio gardens that they're growing on. And people are just saying, well, hey, why can't I get food that's closer to me? So I think in vertical farming will be continued to be more popular because of this, this space and the time to market that everybody's kind of craving now that they've had this little taste of not so much hustle and bustle and, hey, we're able to get fresh food, you know, maybe right down the street at a vertical farming in, in the city. So I think it will continue to to grow and um, it has less, you know, external factors that can change the yield of the crop. So I think um, there certainly has other challenges, but I think it will continue to grow in popularity. And, but I don't think it would really ever be able to replace large acreages of farm that can just have so much yield.
0: Yeah. When it comes to the large acreages of farm, right? We talked about it just briefly. Let's say they tend to be further away from data centers. (laughs) I think that's a fair statement. How will edge computing transform the way these farms will operate?
1: Oh, yeah. So, and this is really, I think this is really cool. I don't know if any listeners will. (laughs) um, So I think challenge too, if you just think of way technology has grown, um, tech adoption has grown, age of farmers have grown. There's a lot of different changes that are coming. So we now have more, I would say, cell towers. You know, everybody wants a Wi-Fi. Yep. So 5G is also at play here. But the edge computing can really help because it takes out some of the need. If there if there's, has the ability to get the data, it takes out some of the need for farmers to perform actions that could have been tedious sitting out on a farm, right? And not tracking water, not tracking weather—you know, not looking up all of these different pieces of information to put together their plan. Edge computing can be sitting in those sensors and relay the data back, and really give the farmer an outcome or say, "Hey, this is what I would do based on our machine learning or AI um, algorithms." And that computing, though, is happening right into those sensors at real time, so he doesn't have to wait for the data to go back to the data center and come back. It's, it's Really happening right there in the cloud now that internet is available, and I think making, you know, we we talk about user experience, and it's kind of strange to say it in the sense of a farmer, but you think about the user experience, you don't want them to have to look up those three pieces of data and then wait till tomorrow because the brainstorm could have happened in the interim, right? You want it to be right there at that time and have the best data possible to get the action. Put them together.
0: I mean the way you describe this, and then we can add robotics. And so I'll give like a simple use case. Just imagine, like you said before, the watering. Whether they use they most farmers they don't use you know traditional irrigation. They use those big I don't even know what they call them. They're like giant crawling machines that are just you know they spray water all over their crops and they move up and down the up and down the fields. So, I mean theoretically, the way you're talking about this in the future, you could talk you're talking about sensors in the ground, relaying data to the cloud, processing data that says you know each plant needs let's say you know one liter of water and it could trigger the robot to deliver one liter of water like Mm -hmm. in seconds correct like this is the
1: (laughs) i would say it wouldn't say you know all the crops needed it might say this particular patch of crops right here needs water but the rest do not so
0: yeah because like maybe the sun just overly dried one patch somehow like the cloud formation created yeah. one gap, you know <laughs> what I mean? But, but th- that's like the hypothesis and yeah. you would, the farmer is now saving or the world's saving X amount of, you know, millions gallons of water or whatever it takes to, you know, I know it takes a lot of water to, f- to obviously water a farm, but like theoretically that could potentially happen where the robots are so specific that like you just said, they're literally through cloud enabled technology, just watering just one spot.
1: Yeah, and, and I would think you know, Bayer is, is very big on you know, being a sustainable company. And I think that's you know, a priority for most companies, but I, I really do think that something as such as irrigation and you know, making more refining and fine tuning that could save a lot of water. And you think about the, um, just the overall farmer, you know, they could plan their resources more wisely. So someplace like where I live in the Midwest, water is not expensive. But there are a lot of other places where water is really expensive and in high, you know, high demand. So something like that could really be a value to each of the individual farmers, not to mention you know, society at large.
0: Yeah. And you're constantly talking about using these sensors to optimize yields. I mean, that's how I guess that's how the world, the future is going to be fed, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it could be that or, you know, sensors are still relatively expensive. So there are also alternatives Satellite images, drones um, that can take pictures and and go through a bunch of other technology to really show the moisture in soil.
0: Wait, you can do that through a picture?
1: Yes, you can. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, like, imagine a flight. You know, like, let's say, uh, I don't know, one machine is in charge of whatever square mileage. I don't, I don't even know how it works. How does it work for the satellite imaging? Get, does it take one satellite to take? I guess, what what can one satellite cover?
1: So if we talk in the terms of satellite images, they, it all depends on your resolution and what makes sense for you. So some satellites do not have good resolution, but they're good for for other things. So you might not want that satellite to show you, it, it couldn't show you because maybe of other ground cover, what is happening on your plant. But there are some that are have good enough resolution and sometimes you marry those images together to form your opinion of what's happening. So- it's it depends, I guess, yeah. is the answer with the satellite resolution and, and image. But they um they just fly around and you never see them, and they're taking pictures all the time. This is so fascinating.
0: <laughs> I mean, I, I like even every time I talk to someone from this field, I learn something new. Like I did not realize that satellite imaging is already currently used to help determine how much water, how much fertilizer, how much whatever the nutrients the plants need. I didn't realize that I was already in play.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it is. Especially when it comes to like external factors. So you talked about fungicides before. Yeah. You can see the overall health of the plant. And, you know, if you're looking at, if this is imagery anywhere, you know, there's use cases for people identifying rodents and warehouses, that sort of thing. But you take a picture of the image, you put it against what images you already know in your database. And then the you know AI spits out and says, this is what you should do. So, uh, pictures can have a whole host of satellite images. At least can have a whole host of um, implications and, and good data for you to use.
0: No, this is super fascinating. It's definitely not so for everyone out there who thinks that the farmers are using their gut and their like domain experience. It's just like oh, it needs water. It's like not like that anymore.
1: <laughs> no, no, I'm sure they do. They, I'm sure they use that too. But uh, there, are, there's a lot more data available.
0: Yeah. So one of the things I also want to talk about is. You have an extraordinary amount of data and visibility and insight into global agriculture patterns. And one of the things that we know that's a pressing topic of the world is the fact that the climate, climate change is happening, whether you, people believe it's man-made or not. I mean, I, I tend to believe that it is man-made, uh, but you know, there's obviously people that don't agree to that. But from people I talk to in crop sciences, they say, no, for sure it's happening because yields, things that used to grow... Or never grew are now currently growing in new places oh yeah and things that didn't exist are now existing in places and things that used to be fertile in places are now no longer fertile and so like like literally water is moving right like i've read about how in india like huge places that have never been arid are not arid what does that mean i guess for global food production because if that is true then things that used to grow in places that can't grow there obviously it has to be moved or it's not going to exist
1: Oh, um, it means a whole lot, right? <laughs> it means really adjusting the, the complete way that we think about farming and, and where crops are successful, right? So just take a, say, Brazil, right? Yeah. It produces a lot of soybeans, right? We have to take a look, say, well, what happens if Brazil can no longer produce soybeans? How What part of the population no longer has access to soybeans? So It's a larger discussion, but I think the immediate thing that can be done would be to look at your own footprint as it goes to um, global warming and how can you reduce that. So it's a lot of just waiting and and ensuring um, what your yield or what the the population needs from each of these crops is really sustained and how we can continue to meet that. I know a lot of what's happening are smallholder farms and in countries all, all over the world are popping up and really helping to kind of produce some of these crops that are now kind of changing because of the atmosphere. But I think the focus that I've seen is really on how do we reduce our global footprint? What can we do in terms of green energy or CO2 or carbon reduction to really ensure that it doesn't get worse? You know, we, we know what to expect now. We don't want it to get worse.
0: Yeah. When I was talking to the person I used to talk to was, uh, they manufacture a lot of the machines that are used in food production. Uh, The person worked at Bueller Companies, and he was like, he had told me the same, similar along lines of what you're talking about, which is, you know, people don't want to believe, but for sure, where things are grown is changing, (laughs) like so. Yes. (laughs) So, no, it's it's pretty fascinating to hear some of the technology at play that's going to help mitigate this. In addition to, you know, obviously. Bear's not going to be able to change the climate for everybody. Everyone's going to have to do something, but yes. it's pretty cool hearing about the technology that's going to be in play to make sure, you know, or go along the way to help food production continue. Alicia, it is time now for the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by the Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation. Very experienced. Alicia, this is where we ask you questions about your life outside of work so that our audience can get to know you a little better. You ready? Yes, ready. All right. So it says in your profile that you travel quite a bit. What's one of the, your favorite places that you've been?
1: Uh, Switzerland.
0: Now, why Switzerland?
1: Oh, just the scenery. You know, I didn't sing in the mountains, but I, I did hike them quite a bit. It's just, it's so relaxing.
0: Now, we would guess that you're an outdoors person because your picture is you uh, canoeing or something. You've said Switzerland <laughs> through the scenery. Are you an outdoors person or do you prefer vacationing in cities?
1: Oh, so I'm both. I like I like a mix of both. So I'm a city gal at heart, but outdoors all the way. Marathon running, hiking, get out canoeing, kayaking, all of the all of the things.
0: Okay. So you run marathons?
1: Yes. Well, half marathons now. I'm getting old. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what is your best marathon time?
1: Oh, um one thirty one? Or my my mar- well, best half marathon is one thirty one, I would say. So I, I kept a seven minute pace. Seven thirty.
0: Holy cow! <laughs> so you're pretty legit.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I'm again, I'm getting older. That was a couple years ago. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Doesn't matter. That's pretty legit. Uh, what is one of the things you're looking most forward to when, let's say, travel restrictions and social distancing, mass restrictions, they all lift?
1: Oh, concerts! I'm a concert junkie. I miss going and enjoying the the music and the people and just the atmosphere.
0: What kind of music do you like seeing live?
1: Us. Uh, all of them. I have gone, <laughs> if we talked about my who I've seen the most, I've seen Dave Matthews band probably the most, but I've also seen um, Jay-Z quite a bit as well.
0: There you go. That's a good, that's a dynamic uh, range right there. So I went to college, university of Virginia and uh, oh, Dave. Dave Matthews lives in Charlottesville. He used to just kind of pop up and play at like bars.
1: Yeah. I would have loved to to hear that. <laughs> me
0: be amazing. Yeah. Well, we were at a bar once and we are like, we overheard it like, that sounds like Dave Matthews. We look over. Oh, it's him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: that, oh, what a time to be alive.
0: <laughs> well, Alicia, I want to thank you for joining us today on IT Visionaries. Thanks for sharing some of your insights and experience with bear crop science, as well as your career. I think it was a fascinating listen, and I hope some of our listeners enjoy it.
1: Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experiences, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with a customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform.